I analyze dreams to keep my head level Strip mining the system to stare at the devil A whiny voice flexing but it got no real power You tell them to flee and they'll be gone in an hour One words are like brass knuckles connecting to y'all's jaws of glass I ain't losing, I don't lose, so fight fair This is for the real ones who ears are open, no they're here There's a reason my voice comes through while you're sitting here Something gets a fine tooth, a bump on your way to work And other know the spirit is hitting in, so let it work Yeah Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're tuned in to Glory Podcast. I'm your host, Monk, back at it with another episode, getting close to wrapping up season two, y'all. Go get my book, Reclaiming the Man, A Rough Guide to Knowing Your Divine Self. Again, a bunch of the stuff that we talk about on the podcast, it's all encapsulated in that book. So it's a great resource to have. You can read through the whole thing cover to cover. You can also pick sections of that book and study the different topics in the different sections um, and use it as needed. But like I said, it's kind of like a quick guide to a bunch of the key concepts we go through in the in the podcast. Um, that way you're not having to go through and re-listen to <clears throat> 70 plus hours of content you have the book right there to flip through get what you need the book will also challenge you and wherever you're at in your faith walk it will challenge you to grow it will challenge your ideas um it will give you enough to pull you out of your comfort zone but it's not going to give you so much that it's just going to beat you down and make you feel bad but that was part of the goal in writing the book was to challenge you to push the envelope just enough to get you to step outside of your box and continue growing, but also to provide you some comfort to let you know that like, hey, this is stuff men go through. This is stuff people go through and it's perfectly normal. You're in good company if you're going through the stuff that's laid out in the book or you are seeking the things that are laid out in the book. You know, I wrote the book and then I myself am actually going through the book step by step, going through all the questions at the end of each section and challenging myself in that way. And it has been very, very fruitful. So go pick up that book. Today's episode of the request popular demand. We're doing a book episode over a different book, but this book is The Prophet's by Khalil Gibran. So I actually read this book for the first time when I was 19 years old. I was in a intro to philosophy class at Lee College. So those of y'all Baytown people, what's up? Um <clears throat> and we had this we had this project we had to do um our professor, it was Professor Lack. So I don't know where he is now, but what up, Professor Lack? Um, And he had, he gave us this project. He gave us a list of kind of touchstone philosophical works, like 25 of them. You got to pick one from that list. You had to read it and write a report about it. And that was one of our, our projects, like our outside of classwork type of projects. So I chose the prophet. 
Khalil Gibran, and I'll be honest, I chose it because I found it in the library and it was short. <laughs> and that's why, but it has become a book that one, um, I've read several times. I'll probably read this book once a year, but it's also between this and The Alchemist, if we um, do the, do this Tim Ferriss style, so Tim Ferriss and his podcast, he always asks his guests what's a one, the book that they've gifted the most to other people. And this is the book I probably gifted the most to other people, either this or The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. So um, it's a short read, but powerful, powerful concepts. Again, the book is laid out into short proverbs um and it's written in kind of what we would say a narrative biblical almost like a biblical style very much um written from the framework or the tone of like jesus giving a the servant of the beatitudes um i believe let me see the book was written in around 1920 and uh khalil gabron though himself originally born in Lebanon family immigrates to the United States and you know he's primarily known as this kind of World War One era um, poet author philosopher though he didn't like people calling him a philosopher he didn't feel like he was worthy of the title he was just trying to make beautiful art he was also a visual artist and if you get a copy of the prophet which I recommend you do you will see <clears throat> like some some of the drawings and stuff in the book. He does all the art himself. And he, he made his living mostly through the visual arts. And he wrote his poetry, wrote the other stuff. And a lot of that stuff did not get published until, you know, late in his life. And he's made, his estate has made a lot more money off of his work posthumously after he's died than when he did when he was alive. He also wrote a beautiful book called Jesus and the Son of Man. It's like this take on the apostles and Jesus um, during the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And it's a beautiful book in the way that's written. So if what you read in the prophet or what we go over in the prophet today interests you, um, yeah, go get that. If you like the style, or you're familiar with the prophet, go check out this other book he has written called Jesus and the Son of Man. So we'll get into some of this book today. It's the prophet by Khalil Gibran. And let's see, I'm just going to read again, kind of like we've done in past book episodes. I'm going to read a short section. We'll break it down. <clears throat> Now, the book is broken down into sections based upon topics. And so this first section is from, or this first excerpt that I'm going to read is from a section called On Children. All right. And so basically, like, kind of the framework of the story is this prophet who's lived in this town. He's leaving the town. And as he's leaving, all of these people from the town gather around and ask him questions before he leaves. And so... The beginning of each chapter talk starts with a different person in the town asking him a question. So this is from the beginning of the section called On Children. And a woman who held a babe against her bosom said, Speak to us of children. And he said, Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you 
but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they do not belong to you. So just that first little paragraph right there, boom. Something we've talked about a lot on this podcast, right? Some of the parenting episodes, uh, if we go back to some of the stuff we, we looked at in the first season, you know, my children are not mine. They came through me, they were given to me, but they are actually just manifestations of life itself. They're manifestations of God. God's giving them to me as gifts. It says it all over the scripture that, um, <clears throat> right, your children are gifts given to you by God. And so it is not my job as a parent to control them, to <coughs> try to make them be who I want them to be. They are their own people. And as any of you know, who have children, as most of you know, who have children, right? They're their own people. They're their own people the day they come out of the womb. They're their own people even in the womb before they're born, they, they've, they're already developing a personality, character, all of these things. Your job as a parent is not is to understand that they're not yours because when we, we, we look at it like they're my kids, my kid, like they are yours, but they're gifts given to you by God. They're blessings because then we take possession of the children. And children are not possessions. People are not possessions. And then we get into this over-controlling mechanism that causes all kinds of problems. That also doesn't mean that we don't provide guidance with our children. So this is fine line of providing guidance, of being there. Um, but also not controlling them and allowing them to be their own people. And Gibran gets back into this in the next little paragraph. So uh, back in the book, and though they are with you, yet they do not belong to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but you seek not to make them like you. For life goes by, not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. So a lot going on there. Again, so I love this. I love this concept, though. Give them your love, but do not give them your their, your thoughts. Now, what he means there too, and some of this again, he you know he's Lebanese, so English is not his native language. So some of his phrasing is very interesting. You know, he um, I believe French was actually his native language, but um give them your love but not your thoughts and what he means here is it's not that we don't express our thoughts to our children but we have to understand what he's saying here is like we have to understand that our thoughts who we think our children are our thoughts of the world our experience of the world is not our children's experience of the world nor are the things we think of our children the same way our children think about themselves because their children are children are their own people they're going to have their own thoughts, their own dreams, their own aspirations, and their own way of seeing and experiencing the world that is different from ours, and that is okay. 
okay. It's actually more than okay because as he goes into that next section, right, their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, Gabron says. And what that means is like you are preparing your children for a future that you're not going to be able to live in. In a world that you're not going to be able to see. So the fact that your children are different, developing, growing, and you allow them space to have their own thoughts and be their own people, it's a good thing because they're going into a world that you're not going to be in, one. And two, it's a world that you can't live in. You're not prepared for, you know, and I was reading in my Bible today, and you see this example with David in Chronicles. David tells God he's going to build God a temple. David sets everything up to get the temple built. And then the Lord's like, no, David, you're not going to build a temple because you're a man of war and you shed too much blood. I need a man of peace to build the temple and to bring the nation to rest. So your son Solomon is going to take over building the temple because he has not known war, right? And so, but it's this same archetype of David lived and existed in a world that was very much different than the one Solomon comes up in. And Solomon, what he brings to the table is exactly what his kingdom needs at the time. Just like David had to be a man of war because that's what the kingdom needed at a time, just as what my children, my biological children see and experience right now is preparing them from the world that they will live in when I am gone. And so, you know, we have to understand that as parents, but also not even as parents as, and I'm talking to the men mostly here, as leaders in our communities, we have to understand that the intention, I guess what I mean is the intention, the heart of the matter can always be the same, but the result, the method, right? The method, the way in which we go about things or the way in which the kids that are under our charge, um, whether that's our biological kids, kids in our community, wherever you volunteer, wherever you work, the method might be different, right? The heart is the same and the, the expected result is the same, but the method might be different and it might have to be different because the world is changing, if that makes sense. Like, so the essential skills, the fruits like building character, love, joy, peace, uh, building grit and resilience and allowing, giving them space and opportunity to build grit and resilience. Those are all necessary, but it's the how, it's the method by which that happens. That's what may need to change here. So, excuse me, I have a little frog in my throat. And then uh, we'll read this last little part about on children. From Gibran, uh, for life goes not backward nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children are living, are as living arrows and are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite. He bends, he bends you with his might that arrows may go swift and far. 
Let your bending in the archer's hand be gladness. For even as he loves the arrow that flies, he loves also the bow that is stable. So here, beautiful metaphor. You know, basically saying you as the parent are the bow. You're the apparatus that's able to bend and be aimed so your children, which are the arrows, are shot forth. And this, you know, echoes of Proverbs, you know, children are like arrows in a quiver. We're not going to get into the quiver theory behind that. But echoing Proverbs, and again, LeBron or Gibran is LeBron. What if there was a LeBron Gibran? What if LeBron reads Gibran? That will be a great podcast. LeBron riffs on Gibran. But um, <clears throat> Gibran was familiar. He, he was into the great um, religious literary traditions of both Christianity and Islam. And, <clears throat> and he was a study. He studied the classics as well. So he's, he's riffing here back to the old nod uh, in Proverbs. But it's this beautiful image that God's the archer, you as the parent are the bow, and sometimes you have to be bent and aimed, and you don't resist, right? The bow does not resist uh, what the, or the archer's pointing it, but if the bow cooperates, right, the arrow is going to land where it needs to land. So it's this partnership between God, the parent, and the child, but God and God and the parent, you know, acting in concert so the child can fly forth, you know, the arrow of time going forth until tomorrow. So that's a little bit there on children from Gabron. And there's just some cool stuff. Um, this one's from a section called On Giving. This next little excerpt, and we've talked a, a bit about giving here on the podcast. You need you need to tithe, you need to give into something, and then again, it's this concept of first fruits, right? That we've talked about. The first fruits of your income should be going back to God, especially if you're feeling like you don't have enough. You know, it's this whole concept. I say this in a song of mine. What you won't do with five dollars, you won't do with five million. I do it in a song called Bar None on the Glory Music side if you want to check that song out. But if you're not gonna give, say you got five dollars and that's all you have to your name. If you're not gonna give of the five dollars, you won't give of the five million when you're when you got five million in your pocket. Because money magnifies the heart. But you know, we, we got to think of most of us in America listening to this, or even if we're in another country, uh, most of us, you know, 12 or more percent of what we get on a paycheck comes out and goes towards paying taxes, taxes before that money's ever in our hand. My suggestion is you allocate another percentage to go straight out of your check into you know, <clears throat> a a ministry or a whatever God's putting on your heart, that organization of choice or that person of choice 
So you're sowing that money into the kingdom first. Because again, God can do more with your 10% than you can do with your 100. Right? But it's the first fruit of that that gets blessed. The way we look at it a lot of times is, well, I'll pay all my bills, I'll buy all the stuff, and then... And then I'll get into giving my my tithe or my offering. It's like, no, give that first. And all I can say, just anecdotally, you don't do this for the benefits it gives you. But I can say, since my family has put this into practice, um, it's just it's changed the game. It's changed the game financially for us. It's changed the game in terms of just time work stress all of these things just start falling off if you can give a first fruit offering and then it applies to other things in your life um you can give a first fruit offering of your time to something so like it's just something i did i I would always get you know my reading in get my prayer time in get my scripture in during the day, but it always wasn't necessarily the first thing I did in the day. And so uh, I stumbled along this concept of first fruits and I just started making that prayer time and scripture time just a little bit. Doesn't have to be a lot. The first thing I do when I get up in the morning and then go about my day and just that change in mindset and just that change in that habit has produced so many results. And there are even days where that's all that I do. Right. There might have been other days in the past where, okay, I got home from work and I read, you know, I read scripture for two hours. Right. You know, I went and prayed and got all this. But something about giving your first fruits to the Lord and whatever that is. It supercharges everything else that you do. Uh, So test God in that. That's my challenge to a bunch of y'all. But back in the book. This is from a section on giving. You often say, I would give, but only to the deserving. Well, the trees in your orchard say not so, nor the flocks in your pasture. They give that they may live, for for to withhold is to perish. Surely he who is worthy to receive his days and his nights is worthy of all else from you. And he who has deserved to drink from the ocean of life deserves to fill his cup from your little stream. (laughs) and so we see this a lot with where our tax dollars go right people say oh well these people deserve these people deserve to get aid get benefit and those people don't because these people work hard and those people don't and he says hey once you give if you give you have no say in the matter of how that money how that resource is used And if you think you do, your heart's in the wrong place. You need to check your heart. You know what I mean? It's just like if I give if I give a dude on the side of the road five bucks and he goes and buys a beer with it and then I'm upset about it. And oh, that dude didn't deserve the five bucks that I gave him. He just went like, no, you gave it. You have no say in the matter. But then he goes back here. Um. Gabron does and he says hey like like consider the trees consider like the flocks if you're a farmer like they have no say they give right your tr- the trees give their fruit freely they have no say on whether you would waste the fruit or not and how much fruit do we waste 
on a fruit tree, right? Or let's say like you ranchers out there that might be listening, you know, <clears throat> you slaughter a cow though. How much of the meat? How much of the how much of the product that we can get off that cow? How much that ends up getting wasted when it's processed, right? Well, do you think the cow would be very happy if we knew we were wasting, you know, all of this stuff when we process it out? So just just consider that. Like when you give of yourself, you give of your time, you give of your money, you don't get a say in how that is used. You've given it. If you feel like you get a say, your heart is in the wrong place and you need to check your heart. Okay, and then he goes on to say back in the book, he who has deserved to drink from the ocean of life deserves to fill his cup from your little stream. And now he gets all of humanity involved here. Boom. Right? It's like just because the person standing in front of you that you have given to, right? They all are deserving to drink from the ocean of life, right? The ocean of life. We're all here drinking of the ocean of life right now. So when you give, don't make yourself so high and mighty that think you can control what someone does with your gift of giving, right? We're all drinking from the ocean of life. He says he, he's worthy. He's a son or a daughter of God, Right, drinking from the ocean of life, by dint of that, right? If he can drink from the ocean of life, he can drink from your little bitty stream, bro. Right? The little bit that you have to give, he's deserving of that as well. Stop being so judgmental. And then he goes on at the end of this section. See first, back in the book here, see first that you you yourself deserve to be a giver and an instrument of giving. For in truth, it is life that gives unto life, while you who deem yourself a giver are but a witness. So what you have to remember, with resources, with money, with time, with all of it, right? I'm a great giver. I'm a great giver. Look how much money I give to the church and la-da-da-da-da. Guess what? That money that time, that ability was never, it's not yours. It's not yours to begin with. God, the divine, gave you the ability. God allowed you the opportunity to have the resources, right? So you, you start looking at these things, particularly with money, right? That money's not yours to begin with. You're a steward of the money that God gave you and God allowed you to have. And God can take that away in a blink of an eye. Really can. You know, you know, I, I see people on the streets all the time living in hard situations. It's like, bro, we were in a situation, you know, when, early in our marriage, you know, right after we found out my wife was pregnant with my daughter, like we were one bad move away from being on the streets. I mean, I'm just being real. We technically were homeless. Luckily, some friends of ours took us in until we got back on our feet. And through, no, but through no fault of our own. We were out there working. We had jobs and we got laid off. We didn't have anything saved up. And it was, it was just a bad, and we had nowhere to go. It was a bad situation. And so... 
when I see people in hard situations, I'm reminded of that of that time. It's like, bro, you can't be so judgmental. Extend to them compassion because each and every one of us is one or two bad decisions, one or two just strokes of bad luck away from being in their shoes. So the gifts that you have, the money that you have, the resources that you have, those are given to you by God. So who are you to close your fist and dam up the flow of the river of the, that leads to the ocean of life to complete this metaphor here? Right. He's given it to you in abundance. And if you don't think you live in abundance right now, you're struggling to see that. Pray into it. Pray that prayer, sit in silence and say, God, show me what your abundance looks like in my life. And you will start to see abundance because, again, it starts inwardly. It starts inwardly. Okay. Let's see. We'll do one more section and wrap this up. I've got a bunch of stuff marked here, but we'll see what... Here we go. This I think this one's more pertinent. So to what we have going on currently in our society. So this one's from a section on laws. So then a lawyer said, but what of our laws, master? And he answered and said, you delight in laying down laws. Yet you delight more in breaking them, like children playing by the ocean who build sand towers with constancy and then destroy them with laughter. <coughs> Excuse me. But while you build your sand towers, the ocean brings more sand to the shore. And when you destroy them, the ocean laughs with you. Verily, the ocean laughs always with the innocent. You know, so... He's likening the building of the laws, the making of laws to children playing with sand on the beach. And the thing with children playing with sand on the beach is, right, there's play involved. There's laughter. It's fun. It's a little game. And he says, this is what laws and building your little societies look, look like from the eyes of the, of the divine, of God. Oh, this is cute. You're making your little laws, you're, you're abiding by them, and then people break them, and then y'all punish each other. He's like, y'all are like little kids because y'all really don't understand. But he's like, the things with the childlikeness is you laugh about it, you move on, and you understand it's play. The problem then becomes, though, the way we see things in society is there's no play involved. And then we put people's lives at stake. So... He goes on in that next section. But what of those to whom life is not an ocean and man-made laws are not sand towers, but to whom life is a rock and the law is a chisel which they would carve it in their own likeness? Whoa. So he's like, look, like this is very, it's, it's echoes of Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. Right, They make up all these laws and strictures by which to abide and then look for a reason to hold it over people to break it so they can punish them. But 
saying, okay, life is not like this ocean that moves and flows and has play to it, but they see life as a rock that they have to carve out and chisel. But guess what? When they carve and they chisel and it's not moving and flowing and in conversation, what ends up happening? They build a life. They build laws. They build a society that doesn't look like God, does not look like the infinite, which the ocean here symbolizes the infinity of God, the eternity of God, the spirit, and how water connects all of us through all things and this connection between the one kid playing in the sand and the other kid playing in the sand, right? Instead, we see life this way and what does our society, what do the communities we live in begin to look like? They look like false gods, false idols that are carved into our own image, not the image and likeness of God eternal. Back in the book, what of the cripple who hates dancers? What of the ox who loves his yoke and dreams and deems the elk and deer of the forest stray and vagrant things? What of the old serpent who can't shed his skin and calls all others naked and shameless? And of him who comes early to the wedding feast when the overfed and tired goes his way saying that all feasts are violation and all feasters are lawbreakers. Hmm. So we have here, he's saying a lot of this comes from the inability to see joy. And it's this accuser, right? It's the old serpent who cannot shed his skin and calls others naked and shameless, right? Serpent in the garden tells Adam and Eve that they're naked, or actually tells them to eat from the cheery, and then they realize, oh, we're naked, but who told you you were naked, right? That's what God tells them. Who told you you were naked? I didn't tell you you were naked. And then we have shadows of, right, him who comes early to the wedding feast. The, if we look at the archetype of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, Younger brother comes home. Dad throws him a party. Older brother's like not going to participate because he's like, younger brother doesn't deserve a party because he screwed up. He sinned. Like he, he brought shame upon the family name. And then, you know, this is the same as this guy who comes to the, he comes to the party and then all he ever does is see, he, he eats, he drinks of all the things that are provided at the party, but then he sits around saying that, um, that all these things are for, right? All these parties are for is that they bring people, um, bad things happen to them, right? The people that come to the party, that they're just a, they're just a bunch of freeloaders and people who want to break the law and do bad things. Meanwhile, he sat in the party eating and drinking and partaking. Right? A lot of hypocrisy there. So, next section. We'll wrap this up. This is still in the section about on law. So, back in the book. What shall I say of these save that they too stand in the sunlight but with their backs to the sun? 
They see only their shadows, and their shadows are their laws. And what is the sun to them but a caster of shadows? And what is it to acknowledge the laws but to stoop down and trace their shadows on the earth? But you who walk facing the sun, what images drawn on the earth can you hold? And you who travel with the wind, what weather vane shall direct your course? Again, echoes of Christ there when Christ talks about the spirit. One who is of, of the spirit is like the wind. He cannot tell from whence and from where it goes. But he's comparing these people so obsessed with a law, with rules and regulations. He says, there's no flow in your life. You're like people that stand with your backs to the sun. Again, echoes of Plato's cave. You think the whole world exists in shadows, and then you spend your whole life tracing the shadows. These laws are a shadow of the greater reality, which is the sun, but you cannot see the sun, and you don't even realize that the sun gives you the ability to even cast the shadow that you're tracing and building your whole world upon. Right, You turn and stand and face the sun, and then guess what? You don't even see shadows anymore, and you move and flow in freedom. Now, all of this is not to say that there are not parameters, that things shouldn't be, go- be done decently and in order, but, again, we've seen it. In our, we see it in our society. We see it throughout history that laws and lawmakers a lot of times are used to oppress certain groups of people and to give other groups of people a certain advantage. And this is what he's talking about here. It goes back to the concept of the Ten Commandments. Those God... um. God didn't need the Ten Commandments. God didn't need Israel to follow the Ten Commandments, but God made the Ten Commandments because Israel demanded them. Israel wanted a covenant. And so the law was made for man, but not for God. It didn't do anything for God. But since people or frightened by the freedom that they had in God, the closeness and intimacy they had with God, because that's hard. It's hard to do. They say we would rather have a series of rules to follow than to actually be in in relationship flowing freely in communion with you. They valued rules over relationship, and that's a lot of what Gabron's talking about here. You value the rules so much that you've taken all the play out of life and it turned you into a monster. So be aware of that, both in the micro, that's in your own life, in your small sphere of influence, and in the macro world at large. But at the end of the day, what's happening here? Getting back to bronze image, Gabron's image of people standing with their backs to the sun. You've got one group of people whose focus is on the shadows, right? You've got another group of people whose focus is on the sun. So what you focus on is what you become and what you behold. What you worship is what you become. You worship the shadow. You become a shadow. 
You worship the light, you become the light. So let's become the light, brothers and sisters. Become the light. That's all I got for y'all tonight. Again, Khalil Gibran, The Prophet. That was the book we read these excerpts from. Again, you can get a copy of that book anywhere cheaply. It's all over the place. Short book. Um, much, Very much in the style like we read through. So recommend everybody getting it. Again, I said this is a book I read probably once a year. But until next time, y'all, Chapoy Monk, peace and blessings to you from the Most High. I'm out.